right. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll continue to do our best. Uh, I don't. Is it super windy? Maybe it's not coming through too bad. Okay. Thankfully, I think next time, like we said, we intend to be indoors again. Um, we'll keep our masks on at this point, but I think we'll be okay to be inside in two weeks. And so if the weather takes a deep plunge like it did today, we won't feel that the same way. And, um, and I, I think some of these audio issues will be a little easier, but I, I really appreciate everyone being flexible, being open to, um, you know, to kind of navigating this this next moment in this ongoing kind of reality of uh, what it means to be at this point in COVID um, and moving into potentially, you know, a long-term new normal. So I'm grateful that we can do that together. All right. So what if something didn't have to mean what you always thought it meant? One of my favorite movies growing up uh, from was like the 1980s romantic comedy, The Princess Bride. Yes, right? I have some Princess Bride fans here. In the movie, there are these two characters who find themselves working together. One of them is the Sicilian boss, Vizzini, who thinks of himself as like a pretty brilliant mastermind. Smarter than Plato, he says, smarter than Socrates, smarter than Aristotle. Vizzini has this word he keeps dropping often to describe potential events. Y'all know what it is? Inconceivable, right? Inconceivable. But as Vizzini and his crew are pursued by their nemesis, the dread pirate Roberts, the, the, the pirate keeps surprising them, doing the things that Vizzini has dismissed as inconceivable. Finally, one of the men working with him, Inigo Montoya, turns to Vizzini and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Vizzini was clearly using this word like a synonym of impossible, something just so out there. It couldn't even be thought of. It could not be conceived let alone accomplished. And yet, as the dread pirate Roberts showed them each time, his victories were both conceivable and completely possible. Well, decades after the film came out, this line has like now resonated in pop culture. It has now become a popular meme for those who are into memes, um, with people calling each other out online for using words incorrectly. So you will see Potentially, if you were in a Reddit conversation and you dropped something in a, in a way that people did not agree with, images of Inigo Montoya pop up with captions like, literally, I do not think it means what you think it means. Now, many of us have probably had the experience of hearing a word used in conversation or reading it in a book that we were unfamiliar with. And without much conscious thought, our brain simply did the work of filling in whatever the meaning must be. And sometimes the meaning we filled in from the context was correct. Other times we can find ourselves believing a word means one thing that it doesn't actually mean because of the context in which we heard it. Uh, I read a story about this online this week of a, a young woman who grew up thinking that, um, that a hair braid 
was the meaning of the word pretty. Because every time her mom braided her hair growing up, afterwards she'd say, pretty. And that was the, time, the context in which she heard the word. And so for years, that's what she thought pretty meant, was her hair braid. So sometimes things don't mean what we think they mean. Well, this is the second Sunday in a teaching series I started a couple of weeks ago that I'm calling A Story-Shaped Faith. And in this series, we're looking at a few of the famous kind of stories that Jesus liked to tell. And I'm inviting us to consider how those stories were intended to shape the spirituality of the folks Jesus was speaking to, and beyond that, how they might shape our own. And today we're gonna to take a look at a story that's quite famous. Whether you've spent a lot of time in church or not, you've probably heard some version of this story. We may have heard it preached often. And in the hearing and the rehearing, I would say likely a common way of understanding the story has been established. But what if something didn't have to mean? what we always thought it meant. In the ancient world, parables were stories intended to provoke. They were intended to impact their audience, but this generally happened through surprise, through mystery, through challenge. And knowing that leaves us with a real question to consider. If a story has a long established, fairly unchallenged interpretation, how can that story still function to surprise, to provoke, to wrestle us into some kind of new understanding? If we're gonna encounter the story in a fresh way and actually be transformed by it, we probably need to have more than one angle to view that story from. We need to be able to ask questions we didn't think to ask before. And I think this can only come if we're open to experiencing meaning in a way that we haven't experienced before. So today I'm gonna to try to prompt us free from kind of a fixed understanding of a famous parable by looking at the story from another alternative angle. So we'll start by reading the parable in question, and then I'll kind of summarize the interpretation that I think many of us might feel familiar with. And then I'm gonna share potentially another interpretation that I've discovered in my study on this story one that's challenged me to think about the story in a different way than I ever have before. And the point of the exercise won't be for us to determine which view is ultimately right or wrong, all right? In this way, it's different than figuring out if you're using a word correctly. The brilliance of a good parable is that it leaves itself open to many viable understandings that can shape our faith and provoke meaningful change. So a really good story might even speak to us in different ways in different times in our lives. So my goal in focusing on these two readings of this familiar story is to get us out of the box thinking that there has to be just one way of reading something and invite us to consider, even if that there is potent truth in the often preached interpretation, how there might be more truth to uncover if we're willing to look again, see the familiar in a new way, move from a sense of clarity to curiosity, from confidence to wonder. So with that introduction, I'm gonna turn us to the famous parable found in Luke chapter 15, the story often referred to as the prodigal son. I'll read it for us beginning with verse 11. Then Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, 
father, give me the share of the estate that will belong to me. So he divided his assets before, between them. And after a few days, the younger son gathered together all he had and left on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with a wild lifestyle. Then after he had spent everything, a severe famine took place in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and worked that country, him to the field, Arab pods, the pigs for eating, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, oh, my father's hard workers have food there. Here I am for hunger. I am no longer worth son. Treat me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still alive to him, and he ran and hugged his son and kissed him, and then his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, hurry, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his slaves and asked what was happening. And the slave replied, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf because he got his son back safe and sound. But the older son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and appealed to him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have worked like a slave for you and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and everything that belongs to me is yours. It was appropriate to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So that's the story. Now let's consider what I would call, at least what I've been exposed to as like the standard reading of the story. I would say often this story is explained as some sort of allegory and the father is seen as the representative of God. God, this reading says, is like this loving parent, always eager to celebrate and welcome back God's children, even when they've messed up really bad. God's eager to forgive, restore relationship with the child who has been separated from the divine, has been lost to him. God's even willing to look ridiculous running through the street, embracing the once lost child with enthusiasm and joy. Now, as I mentioned before, this story has classically been known as, it's not referred to this in the scripture, but it's kind of been given the popular title, the prodigal son. Now, as it happens, I think this word prodigal is actually one that many folks misunderstand because they've only heard it in reference to this parable. So I think a lot of people actually assume that prodigal means like someone who leaves and comes back, but that's not true. The word prodigal refers to recklessly spending money. 
in a foolish way. Okay, lavishly dispensing of resources, as we see the younger son do with the inheritance that he retakes from his father. So in the classical allegorical interpretation, this prodigal son represents the sinner who eventually repents. He's messed up. He was foolish. He was willing to terminate relationship with his family, but he sees the error of his ways and he returns. And as he returns to his father saying, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, he's generally understood to be confessing his wrong, returning in humility, demonstrating a genuine spirit of repentance. And this repentant spirit is rewarded with the loving embrace of the father, just as we are encouraged to see ourselves as experiencing the loving welcome of the divine when we humble ourselves when we return to our creator. One of the most famous reflections on the reading of that story came from the painter Rembrandt. His famous painting of the son being embraced by his father has been a source of meditation and encouragement for many Christians since it was painted as they imagine themselves being embraced by their divine parent in the same way. So you might wanna go look it up later if you're curious. It's a beautiful image. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. Of course, there's another character in the story. There's the elder son, who the story says is out in the fields. He's not celebrating. He doesn't want to join the party. And in traditional readings, he's understood to represent, say, the Pharisees in Jesus's day or other religious leaders who maybe criticized Jesus for doing things like eating with sinners. In some contexts, the older brother character becomes generalized to maybe represent the Jewish people in the early church who may have objected to God welcoming Gentiles into the church family. Often today, this is understood to point to whoever we think of as the religiously scrupulous in the church. So this could be conservative Christians, this could be Catholics, this could be whatever a particular community imagines might be the folks who are a bit grumpy and resentful that God is more gracious and open-hearted to people than they are. In this reading, God is the parent encouraging whoever those resentful members of the spiritual family are that yes, of course they matter too, but they need to embrace the family members that have recently been recovered rather than holding them at arm's length. Does any of this sound familiar to any of you all? Okay, so this is essentially the reading I've been familiar with over decades of studying this parable. And to be sure, there have been like different nuances brought out in different contexts, but the overall understanding that Jesus intended this story to be an allegory for how we relate to God pretty much went unquestioned. Now, to be clear, I'm not here to say this morning that that reading isn't powerful. I'm not here to say it's not true. I think there's actually a lot about this interpretation that does ring true. I do believe the divine is eager to receive us whenever we turn toward them with a desire to reconnect. I do think God wants to restore ruptures in our relationships, especially if we feel a lot of shame about some way we, we know we've really screwed up. Receiving the encouragement that the divine is like, running towards us like this eager father ready to embrace us that that really powerful word of encouragement and i think it does reflect something true i do wonder though if parables are meant to surprise 
and to challenge. How surprising is the reading of that parable? Like how surprising would it have even been in Jesus's day? That point that God cares about you, wants to receive you if you come to God. It's also true that this reading, while it may have much to attest to it, does leave a number of questions unanswered. Perhaps the questions are all just like beside the point, not to be concerned with. It's just a story, it's fine. Or maybe they illuminate that our interpretation might not be the only way of looking at the story. So one question that comes up, the story makes it seem like the younger son's request to receive his inheritance as he does is like foolish or even disrespectful. Many interpreters through the centuries have even argued that the request itself to get this inheritance before his father has passed is, is sinful. Believing the young man is essentially declaring he wishes the father dead by asking for his inheritance while his father's still living. But if this is so, that the younger son is behaving badly even before he wastes the money, what might we say about the father who accommodates the request without raising any objection? I mean, isn't he complicit in this uh, act of foolishness? Just last words. Isn't he as prodigal in giving away half of his resources as his son is once he has them? If we follow the reading, is this how we are to understand God as like an indulgent parent who gives in to our whims, even when they're foolish, selfish, or potentially destructive? Just a question. Then there's the question of the prodigal son's repentance. How sincere is it, really? Upon a close reading of the story, it's not actually clear to me that any actual regret or moving of conscience prompts the younger son to return. His mind returns to home when his stomach is empty. A skeptical reader might consider that this man's father seems to have always given him what he needs. Now, this young man is starving, he's out of options, so perhaps it's time to go ask again. And as the young man formulates a plan, the plan seems to be built on his relationship with the person he's returning to. Yes, he intends to propose being treated as a servant, but as he makes this plan, he keeps repeating the language of father. I'm gonna to go to my father and I'm gonna to say to him, father, as if he seems to hope that this special relationship he has with this man will carry more weight with him than the actual request to be treated as a servant. Perhaps it's just a manipulation. Then there's the statement, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Smart students of the Jewish Torah, like Jesus, and many of those who were listening to him, would recognize the resonance of this statement with their ancient stories and know that it's not a good one. These words, I have sinned against heaven and against you, are an echo of the very words Pharaoh used when he was trying to convince Moses to relent and call off the plagues. In that story, it was clear that despite the claim, there was no genuine change of heart in the person who spoke those words. Pharaoh said, I have sinned because it was in his interest to do so. He wanted the locusts gone. It was not a sincere expression of contrition. Jesus's listeners might have wondered if the same was true for this young son. Has the son really had a change of heart? Or is this just another con 
an attempt to get more out of dad by playing on his heartstrings. The story doesn't really make it clear. And then there's the problem of the older brother. The traditional reading looks at him pretty unsympathetically, usually connecting him with figures within Judaism. But as Amy Jill Levine, who is herself a Jewish New Testament scholar, as she points out, these readings have tended to rely on anti-Semitic tropes rather than a real understanding of Jewish culture and thought in Jesus's day. So they've often relied on shallow Christian understandings that insist that the Jews of Jesus's day were only concerned with what we might call works righteousness, earning God's approval through good deeds. This stereotype also insists that the Jews did not believe that God could welcome those who had lived in ways that would be considered sinful. But this idea that Jewish people did not believe that God cared about or was eager to welcome repentant sinners, that's just not what we see in the Hebrew Bible. Throughout the Hebrew Bible, there are stories of repentance from people like King David and the prophets themselves were sent to call people to that kind of return to the divine. To be sure, judgment of others and a desire to control the divine will or limit divine grace because of our own challenge with grace, that is a universal issue. It is across spiritual traditions. And that might be part of what Jesus was pointing to and telling this parable. But we have to be careful that we don't allow our own biases to generalize this tendency and simply project it onto whoever it is we see as judgmental in defense of ourselves. Does that make sense? Now, there is, of course, a reason I need to acknowledge that Christians have so often opted for this common interpretation of the prodigal son parable. As I said earlier, Luke is the author of the gospel in which this story appears, and he seems to set up this interpretation with his intro comment. At the beginning of chapter 15, Luke begins the section that will include our parable this way. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him, but the Pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Luke tells us that Jesus told three parables, all related to something being lost, then found, then celebrated. One sheep out of 100 that the shepherd goes to find, one coin out of 10 that a woman searches for her home for and finds and celebrates, and then one son. By arranging these parables this way and introducing them as he does, I think a lot of Christians have believed that Luke is inviting us to read the parables as being about repentant sinners being welcomed back into the fold. But if parables are meant to have multiple meanings, is it possible that Luke himself, by presenting the parables this way, might have actually limited their scope? Now, I'm not trying to say Luke was wrong, but maybe his interpretation isn't the only one to consider. What if we put Luke's reasoning aside and just considered the story, and perhaps the two before it, from another point of view? And so now I'm going to invite us to consider, again, the work of Amy Jalabine, who I've referenced already, and her alternative reading of the parable. I'm just going to summarize it for us now. 
In the traditional reading, we assume the father's meant to represent God. We also assume that we're supposed to connect with one of the brothers, either the prodigal who returns as a supposedly repentant sinner or the judgmental older brother who stands outside the party kind of pouting. But what if the father isn't meant to be an allegory for God? What if the father in the story is just a fictional father? And further, what if he's actually the one we're supposed to consider relating to? The story of the prodigal son does seem to work with the two short parables that appear in Luke just before it. We didn't read them, but they are quite brief. You can read them later if you want. There's a lost sheep. There's a lost coin. There's a lost son. But in each of those other stories, the person the storyteller is inviting us to connect with is actually the person who has lost something. Jesus makes this explicit the way he asks, which one of you, if he has 100 sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go look for the one that he has lost until he finds it? Now, in this case, he's not actually asking them to imagine what God would do. He's asking them to imagine themselves in that scenario. If you lost a sheep, wouldn't you go after it, he's saying. Now, surprisingly, he asked them this question to which most of them would probably say, um, no, I would not leave my 99 sheep unprotected and go find the one that wandered off. I might not even notice that the one wandered off. It's a surprising rhetorical challenge to the listener to think about whether or not they would or should do that. But the listener is primarily invited to consider and connect with the shepherd, not the sheep. The same thing follows with the woman and her coin. What woman, if she had 10 silver coins and loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search thoroughly until she finds it, Jesus says. The audience isn't asked to imagine being a lost coin. They're asked to imagine being the woman who's lost it. So. We have three stories Jesus is telling about someone suffering a loss and then celebrating upon finding the thing that's been lost. In the first two, Jesus is inviting his listeners to connect with that person who's experienced the loss and then celebrated recovery. Perhaps as he tells this third story, he means for us to make a similar connection. So if we're drawn to consider the father as the character we connect with, what might we notice about his journey? Well, as I've already alluded to, one way of seeing the father is to view him as a rather indulgent parent, one who is himself prodigal, giving away half his fortune to his younger son, bringing suffering to himself and his household as he enables this child's foolishness. And after indulging his youngest son and watching him run off with half his fortune, the father clearly grieves the loss of him. One might think of Jacob, who indulges his favorite son, Joseph, and then is tortured by the loss of him. This father has his eyes on the horizon, ever looking for the young man who has left him. And so when the son does approach, dad sees him coming from afar, eagerly runs to him in the road, throws his arms around the young man who's returned back to him, unconcerned with whatever motives brought the son back. He's just ecstatic to celebrate, like the shepherd with the sheep or the woman with the coin, what has been lost, has been found. But in all of this playing out, something else has gone missing. The father throws a feast, but forgets to extend a pretty important invitation. 
This is a father not of one son, but of two. And as the father begins to celebrate the return of the younger, he does not even think to invite his older child. Instead, he lets him just keep working in the fields while everyone else parties. It's only upon hearing that the older son is angry that the father even acknowledges him. The son's anger is pretty understandable. Not only has dad given half of everything to his brother, he's pined for him throughout his brother's absence, but hasn't seemed to spend much energy at all on the son who actually stayed behind. His father didn't even think to invite him to his party. The older son does not feel valued or included in this family. You can hear it in the way he speaks of his brother with a kind of distance. He calls them this son of yours who has returned. The father is desperate to renew their family connections, recognizing what is happening, speaking to the eldest, encouraging him to acknowledge the one who has returned as his brother. But the story is left open to us. We don't know if the father convinces the older son to join the party, or if the family remains separated, unable to find one another again. From this point of view, we have another story about losing and finding, but this one's unique. The father in our story thought he had one lost son, but the son who has been with him all along, he is also lost in his own way. He may have been physically present, but there is a relational loss. For Amy Jill Levine, the prodigal son is the wrong name for this parable. It puts too much focus on that character. The lost son or sons might be a better title. And with it, the challenge for us to consider which son is indeed lost. This unique reading of the story does not enforce simple truths we likely already know, that God welcomes us when we mess up. God invites us to welcome other spiritual family members. For me, this reading provokes me with a personal challenge. And the challenge is to consider where we might be like the shepherd or the woman or the father. How aware are we of what we have and what might be missing, what we may have lost? Do we notice? the one missing amongst the 99? Do we notice the one coin missing among the 10? Do we notice the one son missing among the two or perhaps the two missing each in their own way? Where might we do well to look again at our relationships and consider where there might be loss that we didn't even notice? What might finding and celebrating look like in those places? And how can we do the work of mending when ruptures in relationships have taken place? One story, two very different readings. Each of them resonate with different layers of meaning that can move us in different ways. Again, I don't think the point is to call one right and one wrong, but simply to ask, how might Jesus be speaking to us through this story today? Here in Haven, I think the best lessons of the first reading are ones that this community has been trying to take to heart. 
We are not perfect by any measure. We are certainly a work in progress, but we strive to be a community where all can be welcomed into the family, where all of us can be celebrated, whatever our story is, and where we invite folks to lay down their judgments of one another and be community together with the divine in the midst of us. That's the heart of the opening prayer. We pray every week. We believe that message. We're already trying to live it as we seek to create haven for all. But the lessons of the second reading, those feel more challenging to me personally and potentially to us as a community. While we throw our party, eager to welcome those we see as the lost being found, who might we also be missing? Who might we have taken for granted? Who might be lost to us that we haven't even noticed? Who in our families? Who in our local communities? Who in our church? What would it mean for us to search for that which is missing? How might that lost be found? Friends, the roughly six-week period leading up to Easter is coming. It's called Lent. Begins in early March. And this year, throughout Lent, we're going to continue to be exploring these parables. As we do, I'm going to be inviting us to take it a step further, suggesting some practices we might all kind of engage together for those of us who want to, um, that help us embody some of the lessons these stories call us into. And all of them, I hope, will be a part of enacting in deeper ways what it means to be connected to others around us and to embody the divine care for others that I think Jesus is calling us to embody. I think that's what a lot of these stories are actually about. So all of these practices, all of these lessons, I hope will help us to enter into this work of searching and noticing whatever we have lost relationally, that it too may have an opportunity to be found. So that's what I'm going to end today with a prayer for us, inviting the spirit to stir in us imagination, not only for how to hear the story, but how we might allow it to shape our faith today and going forward. Will you pray with me? Divine, we thank you for the ways that you call us to notice. The ways that you invite us to consider what it means to be lost. What it means to notice. What it means to find. What it means to celebrate. We do feel gratitude for all the ways that we have been found by you, O oh God. But we also know that there are ways where we miss the finding. Would you open our eyes in this season, through Lent and beyond, to have fresh perspective and fresh capacity to do the work of searching for that which is lost. Those relationships in our lives that we may have neglected or that have just gone dormant through the distance of the last couple years, the places where we didn't think to notice, where we assumed everything was fine, like that father. God, would you open our hearts, our minds, our spirits, our time, our resources 
to do that work of discovery and of finding that which has been lost that we might celebrate recovery. Amen. Amen.